All right. Well, I uh, got the microphone this morning for the first time in like nine days and a little bit uh, not nervous. I'm very excited about preaching this morning. Brother Hunter uh, came into my office. You go over to Mark chapter number four. Brother Hunter came into my office on Friday and he said, I am so glad I am not the one preaching after that revival. And I told him, I said, I'm glad you're not the one preaching after revival too. And uh, But I am excited about preaching to us this morning. I've got a heart full of stuff I want to cover. Uh, in fact, my heart is so ready for it. I, uh, I want to pray ahead of time. I want to pray to start out the service, and uh, we're going to get a running start. I, I'm so excited about it, mind you. I have actually, I told my wife, I worked in, uh, I, I draw in my notes. I, I have, sometimes I have an issue reading. I'm a little bit dyslexic and things. So I actually put like, like uh, illustrations in my notes. And I, in my notes, because of how excited I am, I actually drew a yellow triangle for a yield sign to remind me, slow down, okay? Slow down during the service today. So that's my hope. I want to try to be slower for you today because I just got a heart full of stuff. I hope you do as well. I hope as you've come to revival over the last few days that uh, God is doing a work in your heart. He's certainly doing a work in our church. And uh, I don't want to leave you behind, okay? And I mean that with all sincerity. I don't mean that as a threat. And, uh, you know, either get on the bus or we're going to run you over. That's not my heartbeat at all. Uh, But if the bus leaves the station, I want you on the bus. And a lot of our meeting next week is going to be about that. And I'm just looking forward to what God's going to do. But we're going to start with prayer this morning and ask God's blessing on the service. And would you pray for me uh, as I preach? I'm not nervous uh, particularly. I just, I want to do the sermon justice. There's there's some big things, I think, in our church that we've got to grasp. Uh, Me as a Christian and you as a Christian, we've got to lay hold on some of these ideas. If we are going to have an effective global outreach and local outreach, there's some things we really got to lay hold on. And uh, so pray for me, but also pray for you in these next few moments that God would work in your heart and uh, that the word of God would not fall on deaf ears, but that you would receive it with gladness and uh, with meekness. I love that that's one of the ways Paul says we're to receive the word with meekness. Meekness simply means power under control. So you've got all this ability, you've got all this, this horsepower under the hood, if you will, but you need to have that tempered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when you receive this word, there's power that comes with it, and we've got to let the Holy Spirit guide us as a church. So let's pray, and we'll dive in. God, I need you today, and Lord, you know that's true, and so Lord, I don't want to waste this prayer time. I simply don't want to, uh, I don't simply want to just fill in with prayer time either. Lord, I need a special uh, unction from on high this morning. I know the power is present. I just, I'd like access to it. And, and I pray God that in a special way, your spirit would do a work in, in, in our hearts that we couldn't explain as any other method than yours. And so father, we commit this service to you. I pray you'd allow me to say the things you desire and And Lord, I hesitate to pray this. You've done this before, but Lord, if there's something you don't want me to say, I pray I wouldn't say it either. Uh, But I pray that today's service just be specially guided by your spirit. And Father, guide this church, Lord. Give us a special grace uh, as a church to be able to accomplish certain things. Lord, I I, I so loved what Preacher said on, I think it was Wednesday night, about the, the grace bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. They had a special grace on them. And I pray for a special grace for us as well, Lord, that we would have a part in global evangelization, but also local evangelization as well, Lord. Spark a flame in us, rekindle the fire, and uh, Lord, help us to have a passion for souls uh, in a way that we have not known prior. And God, would you burn that flame brightly? If we ever to reach this world, uh, we're going to have to adjust some things as a church and as Christians and as, as, as parents and as spouses. I pray, God, that just in a special way you'd work in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let me say again, what an amazing week we had. I I hope that you were here, and uh, we had great crowds each night, so if if, uh, if you... If you weren't here, I may not have even noticed that because the, the crowd was so good. But it was a blessing to see what God is doing in our church and working in our church. Uh, we've been praying through the, if you think about it, uh, we've been trying for the whole year to align our 
our mission strategy and our evangelism strategy closer to the scripture. And we have certainly heard a truckload of scripture this week and just Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse, um, you know, story after story from the scripture uh, about how global evangelization works. And so we are trying to align to that. Let me say this too. I'll talk more about this next Sunday afternoon as well. But let me say, I have never been more proud and more relieved to be a Baptist than I am right now. And here's the reason. Uh, and I am convinced a Baptist, but that's, that's a sidebar. But what I am grateful to be a Baptist for is that as a Baptist, if anything defines a Baptist... It's that this is our, our source of authority. That if the Bible tells us to do it, that we are supposed to do it. If it's in the book, it should be done by God's people. And if what we're doing, we find to be incompatible with what's in the book, then we're the ones that are supposed to change. And uh, that will and has always been true of Baptists. And so long as we call ourselves a Baptist, and I think till Jesus comes back, that's our intent. But as Baptists, that means we're supposed to be doing what we find in this book. We're supposed to be doing it the way we find in this book. And uh, we don't do the things that we do as Baptists historically or presently because other people are doing it. We don't do what we do as Baptists because it's pragmatic or it works. We as Baptists, if anything throughout history has defined a Baptist, it has been that their source of authority is found from the Scripture. In fact, even pastoral authority it only is only borrowed from the Bible and only goes so long as the Bible allows it to go. So the only real source of authority we get is from the Bible. And so in areas where the Bible gives clear instructions and examples, what we are supposed to do is follow those instructions and examples. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been working, I've been working in my office 50 plus hours reading Baptist history from our inception in the early 1500s uh, to how it flowed through America and all of those things. And if anything is true of the Baptist, it's this, that this book gets to define what we do. And uh, as a pastor, I just want to say, I'm, I'm relieved that that's the case. Because if there's a change we have to make as a church, all I have to do is copy what Scripture says. All you and I have to do is copy what Scripture says. You remember when you were a kid, and maybe some of you don't, but it, my generation will probably remember. You remember tracing paper? I don't know if that's still a thing or if it was a thing before me. How many, those older than me, did you have tracing paper as well? Oh, okay, all right. I just assumed it was all rock and chill. I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. But tracing paper, all you have to do, you, you can pretend people will give you credit for being an awesome artist when all you did was copy right? And as Baptists, we don't have to be awesome artists. We just have to copy. I don't have to come up with some original plan in, in my, you know, genius little brain. All I have to do is copy. And so as a Baptist, that's the relief I get to take as a pastor to say, hey, church family, all we have to do is copy. And we've spent the last week hearing how God desires for us to do it. The problem is, and maybe you've experienced this when you were a kid, if you accidentally take two pieces of tracing paper or three pieces of tracing paper, it becomes harder to see the lines, and I'm afraid that sometimes, in some ways, as Baptists, we have heritage, and we have the way we've inherited, and we've had the, the default positions that don't necessarily, the lines aren't necessarily unbiblical, they're just not compatible with the patterns we find in Scripture. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is just revisit, hey man, this is what the Bible says, and here's what we ought to be doing, and here's how we ought to follow that, and, and what a blessing that is. So do not miss next Sunday uh, afternoon as we fellowship. We've got some plans, but we want input, we want involvement and contribution. Uh, this is our collective church, and as we heard, evangelism is an all-church uh, uh, responsibility. It's a whole church strategy. Well, if it's a whole church strategy, here's my plan. I want it to be a whole church decision. Um, I don't want anybody in a year from now saying, oh, pastor, you did this. No, we are going to do this. We as a church are going to make some decisions together about how we want to approach missions, where we want to dedicate our money. There's partnerships, there's journeys, 
all the things that we have talked about. And so I am excited about the opportunity to preach. Uh, it was a great missions conference, but I will say this. Halfway through the missions conference, God had already really worked in my heart about what direction, and then shortly thereafter gave me the passages to go to. It's Mark chapter number four. Um, and so what I want us to do is, I want to be careful I say this. I want to come down, not to reality, but I want to come down to today. Right now, I am starry-eyed. I cannot wait for the things that are coming. I want to go to all the world. We have some plans for March and the following uh, six months after that with our, our church and everybody who wants to go uh, there in the middle of next year. Uh, there are some things in the works. We're going to talk a lot about it next week. But listen to me, church family. We don't have to wait to reach the world, nor should we wait to reach the world. For the simple reality that Bakersfield and Kern County is very much a part of the world. And so while we get excited and starry-eyed and, and man, I want to go do, and I do too, and I am excited, and I've been talking to some different men and trying to put together a team and put together a plan, and I am excited. We need to cross the oceans, but we cannot forget there are people who are literally across the fence from us who are within our reach. For the last few months, we've been driving as a staff and planning for a special Sunday on October the 22nd. At the end of service, you'll get to see a video and you'll get one of these on your way out. I'll explain more about it. But basically what we're going to do as a church is I'm going to give you five tracks. And over the course of this next week, you're going to pray and ask God what five families you're going to go invite and bring to church that are within your reach. And that Sunday is going to be entitled True Purpose. And the heartbeat of it, you'll see the video in a minute, like I said, the heartbeat of that is that your neighbors, your family, your friends, and your coworkers would understand what the true purpose of Jesus coming was. I remember as a lost person, I had no idea why Jesus was here. I had no concept of what he came to do. I didn't know he was God. And there was a bunch of things I didn't know until someone explained to me the whole purpose Jesus came. And the whole purpose of October the 22nd, we're going to see more over the course of the next few weeks, is to bring those nearest us to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And please hear me. Listen, church family, I, I want, I am praying, I am awake, planning, trying to build out a global missions strategy. I want to reach Zambians, and I want to reach Angolans, and I want to reach Fijians. But God also desires for us to do the work of an evangelist right here and now in our communities and in our county. And the passage we're going to this morning actually brings that whole, all of my introduction, into a very clear biblical focus. So we're going to go to Mark chapter number five. I think I told you chapter four. I apologize. Mark chapter number five is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter number five. We're going to read our text together. We're going to walk through it. We're going to unpack it. And uh, we're going to really introduce the whole concept and walk through the whole story together. And uh, we're going to see this story in detail. And we're really not going to get to the message until the very, very end. But you stay with me and we'll learn something this morning. Mark chapter number five, verse number one says, and they, that's speaking of Jesus and his disciples, came over unto the other side of the sea, and that's the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus has just left Capernaum, that's his hometown, and he's traveling 40 miles to the east, and he's heading over into, verse number one, into the country of the Gadarenes. So that's Gadara. And in chapter number four, in fact, you can look back there in just a second with me, but in chapter number four, while they're making this journey, a massive storm hits. And uh, what happens is Christ is on the the boat and the disciples are losing their minds. They think this boat's going to sink reasonably so. And Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and he calms them. Now, please understand to you and I, that's like, yeah, that's what Jesus does. 
But to the disciples, they have just started following him. You realize we're only in chapter number five. Jesus has barely just called the disciples. They're actually on their first Gentile mission, according to Mark, uh, that they've ever done. They're going to go over into the Gadarenes. But this is one of the first miracles the disciples have ever seen. And at the end of this chapter, you can look at it, chapter four, at the end of the chapter number four, it ends with the disciples making this beautiful statement. What manner of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. So this unbelievable, unnatural, supernatural thing happens in chapter number four. The sea becomes glass. They end up on the other side of the shore in the country of the Gadarenes. And I want you to notice what happens immediately. Verse number two. And when he was come out of the ship, what's the next word? Read it out loud. Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man of an unclean spirit. Well, this is a bit curious if you don't, uh, or if you think about it here, Jesus comes to the other side of the sea. And as soon as they beach, the exact place that they beach, the exact time that they beach, there meets him a man that you and I might recognize as the maniac of Gadara. And he's already waiting. He knows where Jesus is coming. He sees his boat. He tracks the boat. He stands there when the boat beaches and immediately he misses and he meets them. But have you ever thought, why would he have already been waiting? Why would he even know who's on that boat? Now, let me speak for myself. This is just the way I would look at scripture, but I have very little personal doubt that this man, this man must have been a witness to what happened the night before. This man in the same region of this massive storm, uh, in my opinion, and the text seems to suggest very much that he had seen some of the things that had happened that night before. In fact, look at verse number 39 of uh, chapter 4, I apologize, just jump back one chapter, chapter 4, verse 39. Jesus speaking here, or speaking of Jesus, rather, it says, and he arose and rebuked the winds and said unto the sea, peace be still, and the winds ceased, and there was a great calm. Could you imagine being this man in the tombs by the seashore, and the rain is pelting, and the waves are raging, and the sea is obscured, and maybe perhaps he sees out on that seashore a boat, because evidently this man knew something or someone was on that boat, because all of a sudden everything stopped, and the winds were gone, and the rain ceased, and the shore was calm. Now, mind you, this man is full of demons. You'll see some of that. And in his demonic possession, there's a spiritual awareness. And he knows who Christ is as soon as he comes there. But as soon as they reach dry land, this man meets them immediately. And I want you to see who this man is. Look at verse 3. Speaking of the kind of man that met them, it says, Who had his dwellings among the tombs? And no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Because he had oft, or he had been often bound with fetters and chains. These townspeople of the Gadarenes had multiple times had tried to maybe attack and, and tackle this man and subdue him and they chained him up, but he'd break him asunder and he'd shatter the fetters and the chains couldn't hold and no doubt went back and said, we need stronger chains or we need more men. And every time this expedition to bring this crazy person in the graveyard into subjection failed miserably, look at verse four, because he had been often bound with fetters and and chains, and the chains had been plucked. Do you imagine the physical strength to be able to pluck? You can pluck a chicken. You can pluck a feather. You know what? I can't pluck a feather, but had been plucked asunder, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And here is this tormented man who'd been subdued and arrested and bound with fetters. And in fact, his demonic possession was so radical, he could shatter the fetters from his chains and no one could tame him. Let me just say, if I was in the boat, that's not the welcoming party I want. 
to the Gadarenes. But it is exactly, and I'm going to say this with the authority of Scripture, who Jesus showed up to reach. It's the only person Jesus is going to reach, if you know the story. Jesus is going to get off the boat for a little while, get back on the boat, and leave in just a little bit. And this is the man Jesus came for. Look at verse number 5. Notice how tormented this man is. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. This is a broken man. This is a tormented man. This is a rejected man. But I'm convinced he must have seen something the night before. He must have at least comprehended that this storm is a giant storm and then all at once it's gone and something supernatural happened and the calmness that this sea experienced, maybe, maybe the man on that boat can bring it to my heart and my soul as well. And my guess is he watched that ship. And that at, at least at some point, I don't know if he saw it during the storm, but he at some point caught that ship and said, when that ship gets to shore, I'm going to be there. And he met the ship immediately at the shore. It's not like he was at the docks. They beached the boats on the seashore of Galilee. They wouldn't necessarily go to the docks. And he watched it. And he knew who he was watching. There's 13 men, at least, on this boat. The only man this maniac cares about is Jesus. And he comes immediately to him. Look at verse number 6. And when he saw Jesus afar off, that's the one. That man, not the other 12. That man is the one I want to go talk to. And when he saw Jesus afar off, notice what he does. He ran and worshipped him. Here is this tormented, night and day, in the mountains, in the tombs, cutting himself, crying. He throws himself at the feet of this man, this one man. Not the boat, not the multitude, but this one man, Jesus. And he worships him. This man who could not be bound with chains or fetters is all of a sudden prostrate before the right person, before the Redeemer. But I want you to see in verse number seven how fleeting his peace is, how tormented he is. Look at verse seven. And cried with a loud voice and says, what have I to do with thee, Jesus? Thou son of the most high, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And in one moment in verse six, it seems he's in his right mind and running to the seashore where the boat would come. And that's the man I'm going to worship and throws himself at his feet. But then all of a sudden in verse number seven, the demons begin to speak. And I adjure you, Jesus, by the live by, by God, the father, that you don't torment me. And these demons begin to speak up out of him. But notice what happens in verse eight. For he said unto him, this is Jesus speaking, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, what is thy name? Jesus begins this conversation with this demon. We'll know them to be demons in a moment. And it's not because Jesus doesn't know who he is. It's because Jesus is demanding you answer me. You tell me what your name is. Jesus isn't coming saying, hey, could you like tell me what's going on, who you are? Well, like I'm a little confused. No, Jesus is asserting authority that you're going to see throughout this passage. Look at verse 9 again. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he, the demon, answered because he has to, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. This explains the fact that this man could pluck asunder the fetters. This explains the fact that many times with adjusted plans and more numbers, they could not stop him because inside of this man existed a legion of angels. For we are many. Look at verse 10. And he, legion, besought him, Jesus, much that he, Jesus, would not send them, legion, away out of the country. Now, this is curious to me. Here Jesus comes and he says, you tell me your name. He says, well, we're legion for we're many. And then all of a sudden, legion starts asking favors of Jesus. Why would he do that? Because that thing cannot exist if this God says it can't. 
And they said, no, 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 don't torment me. In fact, you'll find in Matthew 8, 29, you don't have to go there. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse number 29, what they say in that same story is, hey, don't torment us before it's our time to be judged by God. They say, man, God is here on the seashore. Please don't destroy us yet. We thought we had till judgment day. Don't destroy us yet. And they're asking these favors of Jesus. But now I want you to see Mark zooms way out to a big picture of the landscape. So right now, we're in the middle of a conversation between, deem, or between Jesus and these demons. The maniac is here. Mark is going to zoom way out. Look at verse number 11. Now there was, there nigh unto the mountains, notice the landscape, a great herd of swine. And all the devils besought him, Jesus, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. So the demons asked three things of Jesus. Hey, don't hurt us and torment us. Don't make us leave the area. And please let us go into the pigs. Now, we don't have time to go into the, the doctrine of how Jesus' authority structure is so far above the demons, but you're seeing it. They're asking permission just to not be destroyed. They're asking permission, like, would you just let us go into the pig so we can kind of get out of here? Christ's supremacy over this legion of demons is so uh, ridiculously outweighed, they needed permission to even exist. And here's what I love. Christ is so concerned about this man, he doesn't even grant them permission to even exist. Notice what he says, verse 13. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. In, in Matthew chapter number 8, it says, Jesus said, go. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. Note the sea Jesus had just calmed. And they were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Those who had tormented this man are now cast into swine who are then cast into the same sea that Jesus had calmed. And verse number 14, and they that fed the swine fled. And told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. So follow Mark in his zoomed out story. He zooms out, he says, there's a bunch of uh, pigs over here. Jesus sends the demons into these pigs, and they run violently down this cliff, and they are destroyed, and it's 2,000 pigs. Now, mind you, that's a lot of commerce. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of food. And these, these farmers run into the city to tell all the people about this great tragedy. Now we understand they're missing the point. What just happened is not a great tragedy. It wasn't about the pigs. No tragedy had happened. Freedom had just happened. Healing had just happened. And so don't fall into the story of, of paying too much attention to the pigs or too much attention to the demons or the farming or even, even the angry townspeople coming. I want you to draw your eyes back to the man that's there. Look at verse 15. And they, these townspeople, come to Jesus and notice what their eyes are drawn to and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. You know, it's sad to me. That's how they define this man. You know, at some point, this guy had a name. He obviously had a home and he had friends, but all of that was so distant in the past. They defined this man as the guy who's got the devils, the guy that interrupts every funeral in the tombs we go to, uh, the guy that, hey, if you're in the mountains, you got to keep your eye out because legion might be around us. But, that's, but I want you to see them, what they see now. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. Praise God for that. But notice the hypocrisy of the world. And they were afraid. You know, isn't the world such a hypocritical thing? The maniac who could shatter chains was manageable. Now, they couldn't control him, but they could live with it, right? Uh, but this changed version now, who's seated, and he's got clothes on, and in his right mind, scares them to death. 
And that's how the world looks at Christianity oftentimes. They, they look at us and you never bothered them before when you were a slave to alcohol and you drink yourself clean out of your mind. You never bothered them then. But now that you're seated and clothed and have logical thoughts, all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, uh, this is a little bit too much. In fact, that's the spirit with which you're going to see the next verses unfolding here. They're going to ask Jesus to leave. But Christ has brought this man calmness, a calmness that scares these people. Christ has clothed this man now. Christ has given this man a sound mind, and that seems dangerous to them. I want you to look at verse 16 and 17. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil. And also concerning the swine. You notice that the entire focus has been on this man. They show up and they're like, whoa, that's scary. And then the farmers say, yeah, that's the guy that got healed. Yeah, and the swine. Look at verse 17. And they departed to, uh, and they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Now, I think the swine had something to do with this, but so far in this entire story, the only mention of the swine is, and also. Hey, the man is clothed. That's the man who was possessed. And they show up. They don't even mention the swine. They see the man and they're scared to death. And also the swine. So it seems to me very clear that what scared them the most is the fact that this man had been changed. That's what scared them the most. And so the townspeople come to Christ and they say, hey, listen, we don't know who you are. They couldn't have. Jesus just started his ministry. We don't know who you are. We don't know what we're up against here. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, uh, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to leave here today. We can't keep you here. Now, mind you, in Mark's gospel, this is one of the very first Gentile experiences with Christ. And they don't know what to do with him. So they beg him to leave. I want you to notice what Christ actually does. Look at verse number 18. It says... And when he was come into the ship. Did you notice that? The Bible tells us here that Jesus got back into the boat. Can I ask you, how long was he even outside of the boat? How long had he actually stood there? Maybe a couple of hours? Long enough for farmers to run and go get the mob and bring them back? Jesus has only been on this seashore for a handful of hours at the absolute most. We just saw the authority of Christ sending out demons. And now all of a sudden the townspeople get to send out Jesus? Well, no, 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 for sure, Jesus could have stayed. But he chose to leave, which brings me to an important question. Why? Didn't Jesus come here to reach these people? Doesn't Jesus care about the people uh, in, uh, in, in the, the city of, of Gadara? Doesn't Jesus care about the greater region known as the Decapolis? Doesn't Jesus care about those people? Well, let's keep reading verse number 18. It tells us, and when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil Listen to this man's words. Prayed him, Jesus, that he might be with him. Can you see the starry-eyed maniac now clothed, seated in his right mind? And he looks at Jesus and he says, take me with you, please. These people have hurt me. These people don't trust me. And honestly, I don't know that I trust them. They've rejected me. Please let me go with you. You are all I want. I will follow you wherever you go. I don't care what the mission is. I don't care where you're going. I don't care what the sacrifice. Let me join you. Take me anywhere. Verse 19 is so hard to read sometimes. Look at verse 19. How be it Jesus suffered him not. Jesus said No. This man, who's now seated, clothed in his right mind, the demons are gone. He has the ability uh, to to follow Jesus. His desire is to follow Jesus. He volunteered to go. Think about the disciples. The disciples, for the most part, at least my understanding, is they didn't volunteer. Jesus told them, hey, you, Dax Collector, 
Come with me. But this man says, no, 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 I'll go with you. And Jesus says, no. Why would Jesus leave this man behind? Why would Jesus leave him in this city? Maybe because he's baggage or, you know, just another mouth to feed. Well, certainly that's not it. In fact, let's look at our verse number 19. So he beseeches him, Lord, let me go. And Christ suffers him not in verse 19. Keep reading. But saith unto him, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on him, on thee. Here's what Jesus just said to him. Hey, you're on mission, but you're staying in your city. Jesus left that man in the here and now so he could reach the here and now. This maniac, as he was so called, was going to have a greater effect in the region here than anywhere else. Think with me. If this man had gotten on the boat with Jesus and gone to Capernaum with Jesus, would anyone in Capernaum know about him? Nobody in Capernaum. He could tell his story and that would be a story. But there in the Gadarenes, everyone knew about him. He wouldn't even have to tell his story. He could just show up and they would know who he is. He could have radical influence in the city that he was from. And Jesus says to go home and go to your friends and tell them about me. Now read our last verse together in verse number 20. It says, and he, not talking about Jesus, and he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And what's the next word? Remember how our preacher kept bringing up the word all? And all men did marvel. This man gets saved. He's freed by Jesus. And he says, please just let me go with you. He's starry-eyed. He's ready to go anywhere and everywhere. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Right here. You stay. Stay in the city that you're from. Go to the region that you're from. And he says, I want you to start with, with who? Well, he says, go home to thy friends. And then in verse 20, it says that all men began to marvel. Now, we don't have time to trace the Decapolis through Scripture, but understand this. Jesus returns to the Decapolis in Mark chapter number 7. And you can do some reading on your own there. In fact, there's a multitude of people that are essentially waiting for Jesus. This is where Christ is going to feed the multitudes with the bread and the fishes. In fact, by the 14th century, they unearthed the Gadarenes and found 17 Christian churches in this small little city. Because one man, listen to me, was told no. One man was told to go to his home and to his friends. Can we just take a few moments before, and we're going to get to the the sermon in just a second, but we're bringing it in now. Can we talk about the importance of evangelizing those you have a relationship with? Those who know you? Go home to thy friends. Listen, God has, this is going to sound obvious, but it's something we don't often appropriate to our lives. God has uniquely equipped each of us with the ability to reach those within our reach. And again, I know that sounds incredibly obvious, and I know that sounds kind of redundant, but the fact of the matter is you can reach people within your reach. I was talking to Michael this morning. He was in my office before he got on the bus today. Michael works at Chick-fil-A. I do not. Now, do I visit Chick-fil-A a lot? Yes. But Michael, Peter, they work there. Listen, I think about Michael and uh, uh, Tasha. They've been coming. Now, Michael and Tasha work with Brother Anderson. Where are you at, Brother Anderson? Are you in here? Brother Anderson, I went by and visited uh, uh, Michael and Tasha yesterday. They share a backyard fence with Brother Anderson. You pray for those people. Within their reach, 
I have never met that family outside of Faith Baptist Church. I would have to knock on, I don't know how many doors before I'd ever come by their door. And there may be even a chance I knock on the door and they're not home. I might knock on their door and they think I'm a Mormon. But somebody who had a relationship brought that family to this church. Now, I'm going to take a quick survey, and I know this is a little dangerous, but I do want your participation in it. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Each of us, and this might be an oversimplification, but but bear with me for a moment. Each of us were reached by one of three methods. Number one, perhaps, and just think through, you were reached what I would call just cold turkey. By a stranger, someone you didn't know. Maybe they knocked on your door. Maybe they gave you a track at the grocery store. Uh, Maybe someone, but, but understand, number one, Someone you did not know came up, cold turkey, invited you to church, or won you to Christ. Either way, the way you ended up becoming a Christian was initiated by someone you have never met. That's option one. We're going to ask for your hand in a moment if that's you. Option number two. There are many people in this room, I'm certain, who God led through his spirit into discovering that themselves. Maybe through the preaching, they heard, they were walking by and felt the Holy Spirit convict and say, man, go to this church. They were doing some research online and found Baptists and found faith Baptists. And through just the leading of the Holy Spirit, certainly other people were involved, but through the leading of the Spirit, you ended up in church. Maybe again, like I said, through online, some way, some shape of that nature. Number three, someone you know brought you to Christ. Someone you know, and and this is for every child in this room. Your mom and dad brought you to church. You don't get closer relationship than that. Maybe it was a coworker in your 30s, and you'd tried this church and tried that church, but a coworker invited you, and you finally came, and now you're in church. It might have been a neighbor, and this is our testimony, a neighbor whose son went to went to kindergarten with my sister who lived across the street who had just gotten saved two weeks ago at a Baptist church and said, hey, I want to invite my neighbor, uh, Dylan, you've got a relationship with Amber. Let's go over to the Trudell's house and invite them to church. And that's how we ended up being saved. But someone you know invited you. So let's take a quick survey. And I'm going to prove a point with this, but just hang on. Don't, don't be uncomfortable with it. Survey question number one, how many of you either came to church or came to Christ cold turkey? Someone knocked on your door, handed you a track, raise your hand. Okay, I see maybe five hands. Okay, good. How many of you, on your own research, you ended up in church? Okay, maybe, maybe 10, 12 of you. The only other option, how many of you came because someone who had a relationship with you invited you? Raise your hand. Okay, you can put your hand down. The most effective method of evangelism is often one we focus on the least. Christ knew the efficacy of leaving that man in and among his friends because he had a testimony to be able to reach a city other people could not. And what we just saw is, yes, door knocking works. Praise God, we're going to keep doing it. Yes, having an internet presence and, and uh, uh, you know, being able to live stream, that works. God draws men to him through those means, yes. But what we just saw is the most effective method of evangelism is you and your relationships and the people that you know. So how do we, from our story, leverage our relationships for global evangelization? Our story gives us some great insight, and I just want to draw your attention to three things, and we'll be done this morning. Number one, the testimony of a changed life is an irrefutable witness. When they see, nobody could dismiss this man when he showed up. 
Listen, I'm for door knocking. My family does it. We did it yesterday. We'll do it next Saturday. Door knocking is effective. We saw people who raised their hand, who got saved and came to church from a cold door, knocked on that. But I also want to speak, uh, uh, I, I also speak to a lot of people that when you knock on the door, they say, oh, I already have religion. And they dismiss what you're trying to do as a, some kind of a sales pitch. And listen, I, 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 I'm not selling a vacuum. I'm, I'm, I'm here because I love you and, and the gospel can change your life. And I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm going to keep loving those people. But, but what no one can dismiss is a changed life. Think about the man among the tunes. This man's testimony was powerful. This man was not just a public nuisance. He was, and kind of bear with me for a second. I kind of developed this. He wasn't just a public nuisance. This man was the boogeyman. You know how, like, in your neighborhood when you're a little kid, you're like, oh, that scary house and that old man? You know, he probably kills people in that house, you know? And he's just some senior citizen who just wants to be left alone, right? You know, and somehow he became the boogeyman. Well, this man is the actual boogeyman. This man, the kids told story, no doubt in my mind, when their dads come home with a broken nose and a broken arm, oh, dad, what happened? Well, he tried to get that guy again. You imagine the little kids, like, you know, like senior dares, like you're going to walk into the graveyard by yourself at night. You're like, oh, there's actually somebody there. Like, this man is the legitimate boogeyman. And every time they tried to stop him, they couldn't. This man was so feared, he freaked people out when he had clothes on, when he was seated in his right mind. They didn't want to touch him. They didn't want to be near him. In fact, they wanted the guy who made that to happen to get out. Can you imagine how irrefutable that man's testimony was for the gospel? Let me give you another example. You know who else was a boogeyman? Saul of Tarsus. I mean, a literal boogeyman. Like, my parents are no longer here because of that man. He hauled them off to jail and consented to their death. I'm an orphan because of that man. And that man gets saved on the road to Damascus, comes to the church in Jerusalem, and nobody knows what to do with him. God used a changed man to change the world. And that's exactly what we see happening in the country of the Gadarenes. We as Christians ought to leverage the testimony of a changed life. Here comes the problem, though. What if our life's not changed? What if we live and talk and act just like the people in the break room with us? Maybe that's why our, our relationships don't result in evangelism. But if we could live a changed people and take that, that, that change and leverage that in a relationship, not to say, you know, like, hey, you're on your way to hell, you know, you better, you better get saved. But what if we just said, hey, can I tell you about how Jesus changed me? Hey, can I tell you how Jesus saved our marriage? Can I tell you how I used to be a drunk and Jesus gave me freedom and it's not because I was better, it's because he changed me and he saved me and you're trying to get over this hurt, but I'm telling you, it starts at the cross and what a segue into the gospel when this man would show up and these teenagers are terrified of him and he says, no, 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 don't be afraid. Can I tell you what happened to me? I saw this storm and I saw this man. When he came, I ran to him and I sat with him and he taught me and he showed me things. So number one, how do we leverage our relationships? Well, your testimony is a big part. Number two, how do we, how do we uh, use our relationships for the gospel's sake? Number two, I think this is obvious in the story. We should use our relationships, not just for our, test, our testimony, but we should use our relationships to straighten out the testimony of who Christ is to them. So, so think back to the story with me. Think about those townspeople right? They hear this frantic story of this man who showed up on the seashore and killed 2,000 pigs. And they run there, and there's this maniac uh, that they had, man, they had chained him and bound him, and they couldn't get him to stop. 
What kind of torment did he inflict on this man to get him seated and clothed in his right mind? You got to get out of here. You can't stay here. But at least part of the reason I think this man was left behind was to straighten out those misconceptions, to go to his friends and his family, to go to those townspeople and say, no, 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 you completely misunderstand who this guy is. You completely have no idea who Jesus truly is. And I find that to be very true of those in my sphere as well. They, they don't know who Jesus is. The people you work with at work think he's just a prophet. You know, he's a religious teacher. Why would Jesus leave us here in the relationships we have so we could straighten out the testimony of the Lord? So we could tell him, hey, no, this is the record of Jesus. And this is who he was. And this is what he did. He's not a lunatic. And he's not a madman. And he's not a religious teacher. And he's not a liar. And he's not a con artist. And it's not a sham. It's the truth of the Bible. And we ought to use our relationships, just like the maniac, to leverage the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ leaves us in our home and among our friends. You know, I wish... You know, a preacher talked about it, I think, on Tuesday night. Like, someday we're going to sit and see all the stories of the Bible. I hope so. I want to know what happened with this man between the time he fell at Jesus' feet and had the demons cast out and the time the, the, the townspeople show up. Is that 45 minutes, 35 minutes? Well, I know a couple things happened. He got clothes. He didn't go to Kmart to get them. Can't even go to Kmart today. They're gone. Did he go to the disciples? The disciples said, hey, man, let me give you a coat. And, hey, let me give him a girdle. And let me give him some shoes. And somewhere between the 13 men and that guy, the guy ends up with clothes on. And he ends up seated. He's probably learning from Jesus. He's in his own right mind and no doubt asking questions of who Christ is. He probably didn't get everything he wanted. didn't get to ask every question he wanted to of Jesus before they showed up. But here's the thing I know. He knew enough to be left behind to teach them. He didn't maybe get everything like, okay, Jesus, could you straighten out the second coming? Okay, Jesus, could you straighten this out? I got this question here. Could you tell me all this? I doubt he got all his questions answered. But evidently, Jesus thought he knew enough. For Jesus to say, when they come, get in the boat. And Jesus is like, all right, see ya. Do your job. The man knew enough to go to the people he knew to tell him what Jesus had done for him. And I want you to see, lastly, as we're ending, we should leverage our testimonies to preach the gospel. Number two, we should leverage our relationships to straighten out the testimony of who Jesus is. Number three, we should leverage our time to sow the seeds of the gospel. This man got left behind for a particular work. He had no idea when Jesus would return. I don't know if he even knew if Jesus would return, but Christ did come back. As I mentioned to you in chapter number seven of Mark, it speaks of the return of Christ to the Decapolis, the place this man went and published abroad and all men marveled. And by the time Christ shows up, uh, I don't know exactly how long uh, that would have been, maybe a year or maybe less. By the time Christ shows up, he can feed the 5,000 and many people believe on Jesus because this man had been sowing seeds. This man was spreading the news of what Christ did for him on the seashore. He was preparing the way of the Lord, just like John the Baptist, just like you and I are supposed to do. Listen, we have no idea what the Lord is going to do in the future. I wish I could tell you, like I can look in the future and say, hey, in seven years, this is going to have happened. We don't know. We are just told to do the job of sowing. We're just told the job to do the planting and the watering and wait for God to give the increase. We have no idea what the Lord is planning or if he's going to return before our lifetime is over. Uh, And it's not for us to know the times or the seasons. It is for us to receive power to go and preach the word. Yes, to the uttermost. Yes, to Samaria. And yes, to Judea. If you know the verse, you know I'm working backwards. But also to Jerusalem. Also to the city that you and I live in. October the 22nd. Through Purpose Sunday facilitates exactly that. What you're going to do on your way out, there's two baskets. One will be at the front door, one will be at the back door. 
And I want you to take this envelope. Now, mine has writing on it. I'll explain why in a minute. Yours is going to be blank. And for one week, each week, we're going to have a different assignment for you. For one week, you're going to take this envelope, and you're going to pray about five people that you believe God would have you reach through your relationships. I'm not talking about going to some random door and leaving a track there. We're going to have those tracks for that. But the ones in this envelope are supposed to be prayed over. And here's what's going to happen. Next Sunday, we're going to give you a blue Sharpie so you can write the names of the five people that you've been praying for every day. And then for one week from next week, you're going to pray over those people every single day. A week from then, you're going to find those people. And October the 22nd, our goal is to bring them to church so we can help them to understand the true purpose of their life. Now, we have a video that we've made, and each of these cards have a QR code. They can watch the video. It's an opportunity for you to say, hey, would you just watch this video? It'll explain what All Sunday is about. And uh, we created this video, uh, I think, two or three weeks ago. Uh, There's a Spanish video, the same on our Spanish tracks. Those will be in this week. And so what we're going to do is, before we pray, I'm going to have you gentlemen, if you'll play that video, and as soon as the video is over, we're going to pray. I don't want to lose what the Lord's doing in our heart about reaching those who we know. That's what the text had to say. It's what God wants us to do. So let's watch this video briefly, and then I'll lead us in prayer. 